Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up, a very special program celebrating the 50th anniversary of the first manned mission to the moon, which was launched from Cape Canaveral, Florida. In retrospect now, there's no question but what we were making history. At the time, uh, we were working like crazy, day to day to day to accomplish the mission, which was to do for the president, or at that point our deceased president, had challenges to do. We'll discuss how the space program changed East Central Florida. Prior to the space industry coming to Central Brevard County, Brevard County really relied on agriculture. You could consider it a rural county. The population was relatively small. People were involved in citrus operation. That was the major industry in this part of the state. We'll talk with historians and astronaut inspired by this historic voyage and space program workers who were actively involved in getting Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins to the moon and back. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space. It was May 1961 when President John F. Kennedy stated his goal for America to accomplish a lunar landing before the decade was over. He wouldn't live to see his vision realized, but it was, with five months to spare. President Kennedy's call for an active space program had ramifications around the world, particularly on the region of Florida that would come to be called the Space Coast. Al Kohler started working in the space program in 1959, Bill Hank in 1962, and John Tribe in 1954. I guess I thought what all the people I know thought. Where did that come from and how are we going to do that? Wow, what a major step forward. But it was the single unifying, compelling mission for NASA and the nation and the free world. I thought it was amazing, and I'll be honest, I still get goosebumps every time I hear recordings of that speech. It was such a, an incredible attempt. I mean, it was far beyond what anybody thought we could do, and yet we turned around and did it. The announcement itself was not uh, that much of a shock. You know, yeah, you know, we all in intended sooner or later we were going to go to the moon. But the, uh, the pronouncement that we're going to do it before 1970, it was, how the hell are we going to do that? You know, it's, uh, we've just barely, barely got a, a foot in the door here. Lori Walters is an historian at the University of Central Florida who has been documenting the space program for several decades through oral histories, the collection of photographs, and most recently, virtual recreations of launch sites that no longer exist. Project Mercury is, is designed to get us 
an, an, an American into, into space. And then uh, Project Gemini is there to provide all the links that, that we need, you know, to, to prove that can a, can a human being last 14 days in, in a tin can orbiting the Earth? Uh, can we have rendezvous? Can there be a spacewalk? And, and all these things that we have to prove in order to, to ultimately land a man on the moon, um, Project Gemini does that. And then running alongside that, obviously, is, is Apollo. Because there is this, you know, when, when Kennedy gives his lunar pledge in, in 1961, you know, shortly after, uh, Alan Shepard, you know, has 15 minutes and like uh, 23 seconds in, in space, um, suborbital flight, um, Kennedy comes out and says, you know, we, I believe that this nation shall in itself achieve and go before this decade is out, a landing man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. So here we are, May of 1961, and we're going to accomplish this by 1969. Many of the things that, that you need aren't even developed yet, the technologies. They're not even developed yet. Saturn V isn't developed yet, you know. This time, there's there's still, you know, there's Saturn One, you know, because there's a famous photograph of, of just prior to Kennedy's assassination. He's out here, um, and he's looking up with Werner von Braun at, at the Saturn One, but Saturn V doesn't exist yet. And so the, the very craft that you need, the Apollo craft itself, and the very the, the booster, they don't even exist yet. So yeah, you know, there, was, there was quite a sense of urgency. There was a space race between the United States and Russia to be the first to put a human on the moon. The Soviets were the first to reach several important benchmarks, including putting the first artificial satellite in space in 1957 and making Yuri Gagarin the first human in space in April 1961. A few weeks later, Alan Shepard became the first American in space. Al Kohler worked for NASA from 1959 through the conclusion of the Apollo program and was in launch control during the Apollo 11 mission. And put a lot of stress on. And with the NASA side, it was kind of interesting because you had that, um, and you also had a lot of secrecy. So you couldn't carry home stories about what you did. In the very early days, you, did, you couldn't even talk about what you were flying, when it was going to launch, or any of that sort of thing. So there was a stress on the family from that uh, standpoint. But at the same time, it was a fishbowl because the NASA charter says we're gonna do outreach and education and so the public affairs piece became a very early part and people saw everything while our competitors on the other side of the world hid everything. We knew very little about the Russian space program and they had some failures that would have helped us had we known about them earlier in the game. Bill Heink was a NASA contractor working for Boeing during the Apollo program. We worked incredibly long hours, generally up before sunrise and not home until it was very dark. Uh, we worked Fridays and Saturdays. Sometimes we got paid overtime, sometimes we didn't. We didn't care. We were on a mission and, and we were going to go make it happen. And uh, we did. I, had, I, I have a, a, a semi-unfond memory of those days because quite often I would get home late in the evening, 8.30 or 9 o'clock. We had two small kids by that time. Uh, I, my wife was very good. She would make sure that there was a plate of dinner left for me. But by the time I got home, it was cold. And it was before the days of microwave. So your choice was you turn the oven on and heat it up and wait 20 or 30 minutes, or you eat it cold. And I had to get back up at 4.30 or 5 in the morning to go back to work. So I ate it cold. Well, on at least two occasions, when I sat down at the kitchen table, 
there would be pictures of my children in front of me with a note from my wife that says, this is what your kids look like if you ever get home early enough to see them. And that was what life was like in those days. And it, it, we, were, we were on a mission and we made it happen. NASA worker John Tribe says that the Apollo program was at least partially responsible for his divorce and that he was not alone. I moved into a new development over on Merritt Island and, uh, and just about everybody in the street was involved somewhere or another with activities out here at KSC or the Cape. And, and we were all in the same boat. You know, we were working odd shifts, odd hours, long hours. And uh, there were, they, as the years progressed, you know, through, through the Apollo program, there were assorted marriage breakups in the street. Uh, my own marriage suffered. Uh, my wife, my first wife, my English wife, you know, said later that th those were the years when she was bringing up the kids on her own that sort of started the rot towards our own divorce, which occurred in 76. So yes, there was no doubt about it that the, the hours and the, and the work demands on the people that were working out there. Uh, you know, we left the, uh, the ladies of the house in most cases, none of them were working in those days. You know, it was a single, single uh, you know, provider for the house. So the women were left to bring up the kids on their own and take them everywhere and uh, it, was, it was tough for them. Bill Griffin worked in the space program beginning in 1962 and now works at the American Space Museum. There were a lot of things that you just didn't get to do that you wanted to. I can remember I wanted to go fishing so bad I could taste it, and I finally got a day off to go fishing. Al Kohler. I'm amazed that, that we were able to do what we did because I know what we have today versus what we had then. It, it was slide rules, not even calculators, slide rules, and pencils, and everything was on paper and vellum. So you didn't have a whole lot of uh, electronic reproduction and capturing of, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that we were able to do all the things that we were able to do. Probably the greatest challenge from that standpoint was the introduction of the early computers that managed the pieces of uh, the last parts of the countdown and, and, and that sort of thing. And that was all brand new stuff. Rooms full of great big washing machine-sized hard drives, for example. Historian Lori Walters. You look at your cell phone today, and, and your cell phone has more computing power in it. This little device here has more computing to, uh, power than the computers that were on the Apollo spacecraft. And you think about that, and they were able to get to the moon, and, and more importantly, successfully back with something with less computing power than this. It is absolutely astounding. This condensed audio contains key moments from the entire Apollo 11 mission, including the countdown to launch, the historic moon landing, the first step on the moon, a moon walk, a buggy ride, and the splashdown as the astronauts safely return to the Earth. Two, one, zero, all engines running. Okay, engine stop. 
Space program worker Bill Hank. In retrospect now, there's no question but what we were making history. Uh, at the time, uh, we were working like crazy, uh, day to day to day, to, to accomplish the mission, which was to do for the president what he had, our, our, at that point, our deceased president, had challenged us to do, and that was get men to the moon and return them safely within this, and I love the word he used, decade. I guess that's how you pronounce it in, in New England. But, uh, and, and so that's, that's what we were off to do. And it, I don't think anybody ever realizes the full historical significance of what they're doing until you've had a time for it to weather and get 10 years under your belt and look back and say, wow, we really did that? Bill Griffin. When we did the launch on Apollo 11, I can remember on the way home, I went to the TV store because they were going to have a color TV. I'd never had one. And I got a 19-inch color TV, and I was king of the hill. <laughs> Al Kohler. In the beginning, with all that stress and with all that work, it was still a kind of a magical place to be, to be a part of that and know we had the presidential mandate behind us. We had the budget to do what needed to be done, and the challenges were all, could we do it? Could, did we know enough to put all the pieces, the millions and millions of pieces together and make them all fly the way they needed to? And what some people forgot, a lot of that hardware never saw its mating pieces until it arrived here. So there was a lot of engineering that was systems engineering where, where you had to put the puzzle together and say, oh, the, these pieces don't fit the way they're supposed to. Maybe we, so that was a big, big part of the challenge. It was not a boring time at all. 
Winston Scott is a former NASA astronaut who was a space shuttle mission specialist in the late 1990s. Scott spent a total of 24 days, 14 hours, and 34 minutes in space. I remember sitting in front of my television watching those old grainy pictures come about when Neil Armstrong first stepped on the moon. I was actually home, I was a freshman in college, I was 18 years old. Uh, 17, almost 18 years old. Anyway, I, I remember when it happened. I was sitting in the living room watching the television pictures alike, along with millions of other people around the world. And I can remember again how exciting that was. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. NASA employees and contract personnel made manned spaceflight possible, but the astronauts, engineers, and other workers on the front lines of the space program were not the only ones affected by it. The space race of the mid-20th century impacted the lives of everyone living on the space coast. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Prior to the space industry coming to central Brevard County, Brevard County really relied on agriculture. You could consider it a rural county. The population was relatively small. People were involved in citrus operation. That was the major industry in this part of the state. People were fishing and doing all kinds of outdoor activities, and there, there wasn't a whole lot of development at that time period. Even after the Second World War, you had the population slightly increase. But it wasn't until the 1950s, and especially in the 1960s, when so many resources were put into the space industry in such a short amount of time that you had a massive influx of people from all over the country, from all over the world, engineers and folks that were involved in, in the logistics of assembling the spacecraft, but these entire programs. I mean, it wasn't just astronauts and their families. There are tens of thousands of people who were behind this effort that came to Brevard County, and, and again, a very short amount of time. So that put a, a big strain on, for instance, the public school system, public roads. You know, there were a lot of dirt roads. You had to build bridges and, and infrastructure to accommodate all of these people who were moving into the area. And with people come the service industry. So restaurants were popping up all over the place, and we had to build hotels and uh, housing facilities. So new housing developments were, were coming up, and public schools had to be built. Bill Heink. Back in the, uh, in the 60s, uh, it was an up period. We were, we were going like crazy. Jobs were very plentiful. Uh, people used to change jobs on a regular basis and uh, you know get a few extra dollars by working for another company. But then we had massive employment during the early days of Apollo. And we started phasing down and we went down. By the time we launched uh, Apollo Soyuz in 1975, we were near rock bottom and jobs were scarce, the, the housing market was a disaster, you couldn't sell a house. Uh, it was not a good time. And then shuttle came along, we started hiring big time again, went through another big buildup and then a slow decay and when shuttle ended, uh, what, seven, eight years ago now, uh, it was like the bottom fell out and now we're building up again and the new world order here in the space business is private contractors. We're not dependent upon on a NASA team to make it happen, the private contractors are making it happen. So ups and downs is how I would describe it. Lori Walters. Titusville City Hall was the, the, the current one was um, opened in 1967 on the centennial celebration for the city of Titusville. And if you look at that city hall, that city hall is 
very large for a community of that size at that moment in time. And what that's telling me is what they thought the future of North Brevard and, and the Titusville area was going to be. It was going to continue to grow and grow and grow. Nobody could have foresaw, nobody had a, a crystal ball that could have foresaw that, you know, all of a sudden, um, you know, once we landed a man on the moon, interest would plummet and the Nixon administration would cut the last three planned lunar missions. And with that, what's going to happen? There's nothing that really supplants Project Apollo. You know, Mercury was there. Gemini supplanted uh, Mercury. And then Apollo was running simultaneously. But there's nothing oh, out here. There's nothing for that. We had worked so quickly, so hard, so fast, that there's nothing out here. You know, the shuttle program, they're thinking about it. But, you know, it's not going to happen until, you know, and the late 1970s and you know the, the early 1980s is ultimately when it launches. And so um, Titusville, you know, when, when I look at that city hall, I, I say to myself, my God, they thought that this place was just going to grow and grow and grow and grow and, and, and wasn't going to stop. Space program worker Al Kohler grew up in Titusville and witnessed the changes there. In Titusville, it, it became a boom town overnight. You know, when I first moved here, with 5,000 people. And it just became a kind of an overnight, uh, not a metropolis ever, but many times it's a five or six times uh, over maybe a three or four year period. So you had a lot of people coming from all over the country, big melting pot kind of a thing, all with a single focus, how to succeed in the rocket business. The new Florida residents were looking to the future, but many were not aware of the state's remarkable past. Ben DiBiase. It was after President Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, now President uh, Johnson decided to honor Kennedy in some way, and because it was Kennedy's vision to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade, it was actually in 1963, very shortly after he was assassinated, uh, that Johnson started to uh, petition officials to change the name Cape Canaveral to Cape Kennedy. And we're not just talking about the installation itself, the military installation, what would become NASA and the Kennedy Space Center, but the actual landmass. So he was talking with the geographers and the folks that were in charge of place names within the United States government. Uh, he was already starting to write letters, and, and very shortly after that time period, I believe it was early, early 1964, the name was officially changed to Cape Kennedy and that existed for about another decade. The problem was that that place name, Cape Canaveral, that he decided to, to change and commemorate for the, for the late president had been in place for, for about 500 years, you know, for centuries. It was one of the earliest known uh, existing place names, European place names that, that uh, we have in all of North America. Uh, it was cited first by Ponce de Leon in 1513 and called Cape Canaveral and had existed for, for such a long time period that uh, people who were living here, anyone who was uh, aware of Florida's history, Florida's rich history, and the connection to that name uh, were, were a little bit upset with that change. Uh, so there were a lot of local citizens who petitioned their senators and, and uh, congressmen to have the name changed. And it wasn't until the mid-1970s that finally there was such kind of a negative. They wanted to commemorate the president. They certainly wanted to commemorate uh, the late President Kennedy, uh, but they didn't want the landmass changed to Cape Kennedy. So there was kind of a, a deal struck where the facility was named the Kennedy Space Center, but the landmass was changed back to Cape Canaveral. The same intrepid spirit that brought Ponce de Leon and other Spanish explorers to Cape Canaveral in the 16th century have current residents of the area planning for the 21st century and beyond. 
Bill Hike. What I'd like to see happen next is get some American spacecraft capable of flying American astronauts back up to our space station. The last thing we want to have happen is have to leave that place unmanned for a while. The experts say it would probably be okay, but you know, that's, that's scary to think about. So we need as rapidly as possible to get something in our commercial crew program flying, and that will either be the uh, Boeing CST-100, uh, which will fly on top of an Atlas V, or uh, SpaceX's uh, Dragon that would fly on top of a Falcon. And uh, those both are expected to occur sometime next year, and we can't do it soon enough. We need to make it happen. John Tribe. I'm very interested in, in the commercial aspects of what's happening now with uh, Elon Musk, SpaceX, uh, Bezos, and the Blue Origin people. Uh, they're setting a, a whole new pace for the space program. Musk particularly you know, has some grand ideas. Uh, if, if the excitement in, in, in watching these vehicles come back and land you know, the first stages is incredible. And I think to me that's one of the most uh, amazing things in the last 20 years was to see a vehicle. Uh, you know, I never imagined a 200-foot rocket stage coming back and landing on the Cape. Al Kohler. We should have been back on the moon 30 years ago. And so, and part of why I left NASA early, and I did. Uh, I was 52 when I retired, and I went into education because it was pretty clear that we were not going to go back to the moon directly. And I wanted to be in a position where I could sort of sow the seeds and pass along for the next generation what we need to get ourselves back to the moon. And we now are in a position where I think we're going to do that. I hope we do it sooner rather than later. And that's what I want to see because that's the stepping stone to the stars. We've touched the stars and there's really no way to go back, but somehow we've postponed it uh, much longer than I think we should have. So I know there will be people who say, well, we, it's expensive and we shouldn't spend our money that way. And my answer is none of that money gets spent in space. Every bit of it gets spent right here on good old Mother Earth, and those jobs are some of the best around in terms of making the community better. Former NASA astronaut Winston Scott looks ahead. I can imagine what it would be like to be on the first crew going off to Mars. Now that would be cool because you kind of, sort of, maybe know objectively what's going to happen, but you don't really know because nobody's done it before. So the answer is yes, I can relate to that to an extent. No, I can't to another extent. But uh, I do think it is important that we continue to explore. That's what we were meant to do as human beings. And uh, we ought not to let anything get in our way of pushing the boundaries to continue to explore in every way that we can. John Tribe. With what's coming down the pike in terms of SpaceX and Blue Origin, uh, Sierra Nevada, there's a whole bunch of companies all, all, uh, all pursuing their own launch programs. Uh, this is going to be a very busy place over the next five years. And uh, I think it's going to be as exciting and as uh, neat a place to be at and, and view what was going on as it was in the 60s. As the exploration of space continues with both government and private sector programs, the Space Coast of Florida remains an active center for those efforts. You've been listening to a special edition of Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission to the moon. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen as a podcast. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. 
Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.